Hello, this is John Lenchner, and welcome to On Not Knowing, a series of conversations about embracing a growth mindset. Our guest today is Rosie Licorice, a software engineer in emerging technologies at the IBM Hursley Lab in the UK. Rosie is one of the principal engineers of the Mayflower Autonomous Ship. As the name suggests, the Mayflower is a fully autonomous ship that will attempt to retrace the voyage taken 400 years ago by the original Mayflower from Plymouth in the UK to what is now known as Plymouth Rock in Massachusetts in the United States. So Rosie, great to have you here. Thanks, John. Wonderful to be here. So can you tell us a bit about your upbringing? What was your family life like? Yeah, sure. So I grew up in London, uh, had um, yeah, pretty, pretty normal family life, um, always had a real passion for maths, loved doing it at school, really loved studying it. And that's actually what I went to go on and study at university. And while studying there, I was always really sporty and I loved kind of going out, um, you know, to we went surfing quite a lot. And I always had this kind of interest in, in the ocean. And when I got towards the end of my maths degree, I was sort of thinking, you know, I'd love to carry on doing maths, but I really want to apply it to something interesting. And it was at that point that I actually went on to do um, a six week trip uh, in Mexico where I learned to scuba dive and did lots of coral reef um, uh, conservation work and, and research. That. And that really cemented my interest in, in the ocean. So then from there, I kind of took that interest in maths uh, and oceanography and I went to study at Southampton University to do my master's. Um, which, yeah, was a fantastic year. So, but you didn't, uh, you've actually been at IBM for 10 years, if I remember, and you didn't start out in oceanography. You actually um, are a software engineer. So how did you get going in technology and software engineering? Yes, it was a slight, slight deviation. <laughs> so in my master's, I got the opportunity to do quite a lot of uh, computer modeling and climate modeling. And I just saw how valuable it is to be a programmer and to use code. Um, I happened to see some of the amazing um, you know, work that IBM did, and it really caught my interest. Um, you know, there were a few examples of um, projects relating to the marine industry as well. One around the south coast of Ireland, uh, looking at IoT for smart fisheries. Uh, and so that was where I thought, right, you know, this looks like a really interesting career path. Um, and, you know, maybe I can bring in uh, that oceanography element into it. So I worked at Hursley, started on the graduate program nine years ago. Um, and yeah, it wasn't until very recently that I actually managed to kind of make that ambition come true of, of bringing together my passion for the ocean uh, with my, my skills in, as a software engineer. So is this just some amazing serendipity that Mayflower Project came along or were you involved in getting the project for IBM? No, it, it was amazing serendipity, actually. <laughs> I had done some work previously to sort of see what opportunities I could create and stoke myself, uh, conversations with the National Oceanographic Centre and did build some really valuable connections that I've been able to lean on uh, just now. Uh, but no, this project really was a, a sort of um, wonderful golden opportunity. I just really happened to be in the right place at the right time. And who, how did, who approached you? How did, how did the whole thing come, come together? So the whole project started, uh, well, IBM... Um, became involved about four years ago, uh, where the um, the team kind of pioneering this idea were presenting at a workshop, and an IBMer happened to be there, uh, Eric Acheron, um, one of the systems leads based in France, and Eric really saw the potential in this idea and wanted to be on board and, and basically bring IBM on as a partner. A couple of years later, uh, it became quite obvious that there was an opportunity to bring on 
IBM's really specialist capabilities around science. And that was where the folks down in, in Plymouth, where the vessel was being uh, built and being uh, created, uh, looked to IBM Research based in Hursley, which is about three hours of <laughs> distance. So, you know, the, the local research team. Uh, and that was where um, I'm based. And I happen to be the, the perfect candidate for this particular project. <laughs> Oh, wonderful. Yeah. And so uh, you mentioned that you have sort of an ecological bent and that drives you to be interested in the ocean. But is there also, I don't know, to me, the ocean is a symbol of adventure. Do you look at uh, oceanography in, in, in that fashion as well? Absolutely. There's certainly something about the ocean that just draws you in with kind of awe and wonder. One of the things that I really love about it is just the expansiveness, how huge it is, you know, and I could completely see um, it captivates interests and, and imagination, just how much is, is unknown still and how much is yet to be explored. Um, you know, the systems that we see within the ocean are so important for supporting life as we know it. Um, so, you know, what's not to love and what's not to be, be interested, not to mention all the amazing, um, you know, creatures of the deep and, and marine mammals as well. These wonderful cetaceans that have been on this planet millions of years longer than we have. Um, yet their vocalizations and their, their song uh, from, from whales and marine, other marine mammals can bring a human uh, to tears. So a species that have never actually kind of coincided together, but still, um, you know, exist at a time, same, the same time and can, um, you know, stir emotion in us. Uh, that's quite incredible, really. <laughs> I was just this past weekend talking to my daughter who had been in Australia and uh, snorkeling on the Great Barrier Reef. And she mentioned how disappointed she was that so much of the reef was dead. And I was taken aback. I had no idea. Um, but it got me a little bit depressed. I mean, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future of the world's oceans? Well, that's actually one of the reasons why my kind of career pivot from oceanography to software uh, engineering was a good choice for me at that time. So about 10 years ago, I was studying climate dynamics, climate change, really interested in that space, but it, it was a very bleak area. And I, at that time, chose an ostrich approach of putting my head in the sand. <laughs> it just felt like too big a challenge to take on. But fast forward 10 years, and actually the landscape's really different. There's so much more awareness, acceptance, understanding, knowledge being gained and gathered that actually it's an empowering space to be in now. And I feel certainly in, in my role in this project that I can make a difference and it is a worthwhile area to be investing my, my career and my time in. Ah, very nice. So you've swung me a little in the other direction from my daughter. <laughs> There's a reason to be optimistic. Good, good to know. Yeah. Okay, so what's going on with the Mayflower? Uh, it, so I read that it started out on the 15th of June, but then got turned, turned back on the 19th. The vessel had a really exciting build-up to the launch. The team was really ready and, and prepared to, to set out to sea. And the first few days were really successful. She was able to do some really complex navigation using the automated, uh, the AI system to safely navigate a handful of really complex scenarios. So it was all looking really, really positive. And, and certainly the, the team was really pleased at how the navigation system was, was effectively working. And it was right at the point where everybody was kind of ready to to step back and really put their feet up and, and get the popcorn out and start to enjoy <laughs> watching the, the voyage unfold. 
when a really small, uh, minor mechanical fault develops, which funnily enough or ironically was, was pretty much you know, what was predicted. If something was going to go wrong, it would be something really small. And that's, that's unfortunately what happened. Because the voyage was still you know, in the early stages, only three days in, only a, a few hundred miles off the coast, the decision was taken to play it safe, be conservative and actually go and rescue and recover the vessel. So, yeah, on identifying the issue, the ship patiently waited in a safe position, minimising its power so it could manoeuvre if needed and was recovered and, and, and taken back to Plymouth base for diagnostics. Is there a date yet for when it'll set, uh, set off again? No, well, we're all very eagerly awaiting, uh, but I think we've learnt over this last year that things happen quite slowly at sea you need to be very certain and very sure before you can go ahead and I think what's what's been shown by the first attempt is just just what a huge endeavor it is to cross an ocean it's Mm -hmm. not a short distance and there are things that can go wrong and it's a dangerous place and there's only one ship at the moment so I think being conservative is so I was reading that the original Mayflower also had many false starts. I don't know if you know, but it, in fact, it was originally going to be accompanied by a smaller and more agile ship from Holland called the Speedwell. But yes. the Speedwell was taking on too much water just on the way from Holland over to Plymouth, and it never made the voyage. So you're not the, it's not the first Mayflower to have, have such problems. No, and I think that's one of the, the inspirations, you know, the pioneers of the past is what helps us stay motivated and, uh, and not give up. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. So this original Mayflower, I, you know, I've done my homework. So there it was a hundred passengers and 30 crew and the boat was about a hundred feet in length, 20 feet wide at its widest point. And it, you know, wooden old fashioned wooden ship with three masts and the trip across the Atlantic took 10 weeks. Now I believe that the, this Mayflower, your Mayflower, uh, the plan is for it to take three weeks. Is that right? Yes, that's the uh, expected uh, estimate at the moment. Okay. And it has this very modern trimaran uh, look to it. Certainly. Um, you know, I mean, it's, it's mind boggling, really. If you put these two ships side by side and you just think 400 years apart, that's what's happened in 400 years. That's where we've come. We've come from wood and sails and manpower to... Um, you know, ergonomic design that's that's energy efficient, that mission is completely different. It's not taking pilgrims to the new world. It's actually about a mission of collecting data, about understanding more about our world's oceans, looking forward to the next 400 years and, and supporting our, and protecting our planet. So I know it's outfitted with, I think, six cameras and a whole slew of sensors. Can you tell us a bit about that and how it's actually managing to navigate? And also, I know it's supposed to do a lot of science experiments. Yep. So uh, six cameras on board the vessel give it a 360 view around the ship. Uh, And that's one of the main sort of sensor inputs. But there's also radar, sonar, other sensory inputs, not to mention the weather company data, all helping to inform uh, and helping build up a picture of what's going on in the environment around. Then we've got a whole stack of IBM technology, um, operational decision manager, CPLEX optimization, um, doing the optimization of the paths. Anyway, we've got a whole stack of IBM technology on board the ship that's actually helping it to make these autonomous decisions with nobody on board. And then, yes, John, as you mentioned, there's a number of science experiments. We've got things like 
the acoustic, um, the hydrophone uh, listening and detecting for marine mammals. We're looking at sea level and wave heights uh, and seeing if we can actually calculate wave energy in real time using high definition video footage. We're also analysing the chemical characteristics of seawater using IBM's smart tongue, also known as hypertaste. Oh, wow. uh, so the ship has eyes, ears, a tongue. <laughs> wow. It's uh, yeah. Amazing, an amazing piece of engineering with a whole, you know, set of different devices and sensors on board, making that all happen. And how is it powered? It's of course not a sailboat like the original, but uh, yeah, how is it powered? It's got solar panels uh, on top, but solar isn't enough to cross an ocean. So there is a, a backup diesel generator that's a good chunk of the fueling, but certainly the future would be to to have a more environmentally friendly source of energy but as it stands at the moment the current state of the art this is the best system what's interesting is there's some really cool designs around wind propulsion or actually you know sail kind of coming back another example of an autonomous ship uh, that isn't anywhere near the same scale as the mayflower but is one called sail drone which is quite interesting using a wind power wind assist to to get across to travel if we were to look at doing that on the Mayflower, though, you'd get suddenly these really challenging issues around what happens if you get a big wave out in the ocean and you've got a huge sail protruding from your vessel. It's it's just going to prove uh, a real challenge out in, out at sea in a very difficult environment. And so what is your precise role uh, on the project? So I'm lucky enough to be co-leading a number of these science experiments. I'm also leading the marine mammal project. So that's my main focus point, as well as coordinating the other IBM research-led experiments. I see. And so what sort of marine mammals do you expect to encounter? Uh, a whole range. There's certainly expected to be some common dolphins. They, they are almost guaranteed to be dancing around the ship at some point as during its mission. Also things like minke whales, sperm whales, unlikely to see humpback whales in the open ocean, but possibly around the, the coast uh, of um, North America. So yeah, quite, quite a range of different marine mammals we're, we're expecting or hoping at least to encounter. Neat. And I guess you'll capture all of these on camera. Yes. Yeah. That, I mean, the ones above surface. Yes. <laughs> and is the plan to actually retrace the precise trajectory of the original Mayflower and arrive at Plymouth Rock? Certainly the, the destinations end to end. Yes. That, that's what will be, will be retraced. The exact routes I doubt will be, will be like for like, certainly with mm-hmm. the autonomy, you know, that's the one that the, the, the autonomy on board the vessel is going to be dictating the exact uh, path that will be taken in the trajectory there. So I, I'd love to be there to see the arrival of the boat. So it'd be three, well, three weeks from whenever it ends up taking off. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'll try to be there. Uh, that's right across from Cape Cod, if I'm not mistaken. It will be a momentous moment, you know, when it finally lands and when it finally gets there. Certainly not just the accomplishment of actually traveling all that distance in an autonomous way, but the data it's collected and also what it means going forward for for ocean research, for this type of autonomy at sea. Uh, There are other examples that exist of autonomous data collecting devices, but not at the same scale, not bringing it all together in one one platform. So yeah, there's a lot of things to be excited about. Oh, neat. It's such a wonderful opportunity to combine your passion for the ocean and your your passion for software engineering. Uh, (laughs) A dream come true for you, I think. Yes. Yeah, I am feeling very, very lucky. (laughs) All right. So as we do on 
all of these podcasts, I'm going to circle around to a specific growth mindset theme. So you're obviously an incredibly growth-minded person, Rosie. Um, your enthusiasm for everything you are doing, it's just infectious. But I know from our prior discussion, we have a common weakness. We're both not good at receiving negative feedback. So one of the tenets of being growth-minded, according to Carol Dweck, uh, the academic founder of these ideas, is that one should look at all sorts of feedback as a gift and an opportunity to grow as a person. So between the two of us, we need to come up with a game plan for getting better at accepting negative feedback. So what are we going to do? So I actually did a bit of research on this after kind of reflecting already and, you know, why it is I feel like I might not enjoy that much getting negative feedback and I very much know that it, it should be an opportunity to learn and you know you, often you can learn something but still it, it's just difficult difficult to deal with um and this it was a really interesting TED talk about a man who decided to become a football referee in order to deal with negative feedback <laughs> because obviously when you're a football referee you're always going to get negative feedback and his um, finding was really to look and assess um, the reason why you find you, people can find negative feedback difficult to take is because you take it personally. And I think that may well be the key. It's trying to actually separate out the intentions from what the person was intending by their negative feedback uh, and actually, you know, how not to take it personally, how not to let it actually sort of, you know, feel like a personal attack, as it were. So it's not something I've figured out completely, but that's my my strategy that I, I think I'm going to look at look at employing to start with. Oh, neat. This, uh, yeah, football referees, they must take it. So every, <laughs> every little decision they get blasted for by the fans and the exactly. coaches and everything, yeah. And could you that's imagine the- if they took the, they took it personally? You know, they, oh, they'd yeah. do one match and they'd never do it again. <laughs> so, right, right. Yeah, yeah, we wouldn't survive long in that job, but we have to figure out how we would in one year's time get to the point of being able to take this feedback in such a way that they do. Exactly. Yeah. So not taking it personally, I think is the key, but yes, yeah. how to do that. Okay. So something I thought of, tell me what you think about this. So I have to make sure that I don't react with denial or by assuming bad intentions in the person delivering the feedback. And mm. As soon as I receive negative feedback, I'm going to acknowledge it and address it by directly entering it into checkpoint and with a, a goal attached to it. Nice. That might be tricky, but as soon as we get negative feedback, I'm going to trend, write it down, enter it into my checkpoint goals and turn the feedback into something, some way of improving. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Like but again, I mean, you mentioned as well about um, looking at that person's intentions. And I think that's often a really important thing because, you know, the people giving us negative feedback, you know, like the advice says, it's a gift and they're rarely intending to, you know, attack personally or, um, you know, really mean it in a, in, a, in a mean way. So it's about looking at when that person's shared that negative feedback, what is their intention? They obviously have intended for you to grow and learn from it so yeah i think looking at that um you know and again a great idea to, to use checkpoint use the tools that we have um to see if we can uh, help maneuver this tricky one for us <laughs> okay so i think i think we have a little bit of a plan so this is yeah. what i'm going to do a year from now i'm going to check back in with you and it'll be a mutual checkup we'll see how we're each doing 
in, in this regard. What, is that a deal? Brilliant. Sounds good. We've got to be committed or in a year from now, we're going to both look silly. <laughs> right? Absolutely. <laughs> so we each keep records and yeah, it's all right. We're on the hook. Okay. So uh, Rosie, it's been wonderful chatting with you. Your career has been quite an adventure and an absolute inspiration to me. So thanks. Thanks for the wonderful conversation. Oh, thank you, John. It's been a pleasure to be here and to speak to you today. Thank you. So that wraps up this episode of On Not Knowing. A special shout out to the show's director, Andy Aaron. This is John Lenschner, and thanks for listening.